apologies for my confusion. I had forgotten that one there was one already online, and now we, we have a second one. So the, our first speaker is going to be Omar Shakir, I believe. Now, provided technology works, I hope that Omar is listening and is online. Is Omar, are you there available? I am good indeed. To see you. Hi, Omar. Great to, to see you, and thank you so much. So, um, let me very briefly introduce Omar Shakir, who I've known well in my other professional capacities, and I'm delighted that he's able to speak to us virtually today uh, as the Israel-Palestine Director for Human Rights Watch's Middle East Division, which many years ago I used to be involved with. So, Omar, uh, it, you have the floor. I'm not going to spend any more time. Please go ahead. Thank you so much uh, for the kind introduction. It's really an honor to be with you all today. I wish I could be there uh, in person, but um, I hope you'll settle for having me uh, on the screen. Um, I really want to commend the Balfour Project to start for the focus today um, on human rights and for such a thoughtfully constructed program, um, especially having this panel on realities on the ground before the next panel um, with parliamentarians. Um, although it seems like a basic uh, notion, part of the challenge we have today in the discourse around Israel-Palestine is the disconnect between realities on the ground and the conversation in the corridors um, of power. And I think um, you know, it's, it's important that we're sequencing the conversation this way. And, and to be honest, uh, you know, the gap between realities on the ground and uh, work we do is not unique to the political space. I think if we're honest as a human rights community, especially global uh, and Israeli human rights organizations, there was a disconnect even between our own reporting for many years and the realities on the ground. And what I wanna spend my 20 minutes with you on today is to explain how those of us, especially with international human rights organizations, have contributed to closing that gap, how we arrived at our findings, including in our report um, around Israeli apartheid and persecution, um, the law that it's based on, the recommendations, and the way forward. Let me start by saying, of course, that Human Rights Watch has been working on Israel-Palestine for well over 30 years. In the course of that time, we've documented every human rights abuse pretty much you can imagine between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. But there was a sense, probably around six years ago, around the time of the 50th anniversary of the occupation, now we're you know, talking about 56 years, that um, our reporting, while critical, was failing to speak to the underlying realities on the ground including the fact that basically today between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, you have one government uh, that rules over the two peoples living there, two peoples of roughly equal size, the Israeli government over Palestinians and Israelis, and that that government's policy has been methodically to privilege members of one group, Jewish Israelis, and repress members of the other, Palestinians, to varying degrees of intensity. So we decided to ask a different research question than we normally do, as opposed to focusing on freedom of movement in Gaza or you know, home demolitions in East Jerusalem. We asked the more general question, how does Israel treat Palestinians? So we spent two years embarking on that research project, doing in-depth case studies, uh, looking at 
trends and research over you know 30 years of human rights watch reporting looking at the vital work done by our partners like al haq or betsela many other israeli palestinian global human rights uh, organizations um, we also looked at statements justifications by the israeli government and we put together this factual picture of how the israeli government treats palestinians we then applied the law now, under international law, there is a prohibition on severe discriminatory oppression, and there's a term for it. That term is apartheid. So while, of course, coined in relation to events in Southern Africa, international treaties, including the International Covenant on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, define apartheid as a universal legal term. And in fact, the Rome Statute to the International Criminal Court and a 1973 convention ratified by dozens of states also define apartheid as a crime against humanity, a crime against humanity that in essence takes place when there are you know, very severe abuses known as inhumane acts that take place in the context of a regime or system of oppression by one group over the other, and where there is an intent or policy to maintain that regime or system of domination. So what we at Human Rights Watch did is take the facts that we documented, apply the law, and we reached the conclusion that Israeli authorities are committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid as well as the related crime against humanity of persecution, which I won't get into in my 20 minutes, but hopefully will come up in the, in the Q&A, um, against Palestinians. Now, our finding was based on those three elements that I'll walk through very briefly in my remarks. First of all, Human Rights Watch reached the conclusion that the Israeli government between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea has pursued a policy to maintain the domination by Jewish Israelis over Palestinians, which primarily takes the form of seeking to control demographics and land for the benefit of Jewish Israelis to the detriment of Palestinians. In other words, following the maxim of maximum land, minimum Palestinians. Now, this policy on demographics manifests in many different ways. Um, one example, of course, is the law that's been in place for two decades now, pretty much without fail, that prohibits the granting of long-term legal status um, to uh, Palestinians from the West Bank or Gaza who are married to Israeli citizens or residents. So while Israelis can marry people from virtually any part of the world and grant them long-term legal status to live with them in Israel, that's not permitted for Palestinians. On land, the Israeli government has a formal policy to Judaize the Negev and the Galilee, regions that make up two-thirds the land of Israel. There's also within the Israeli municipal planning documents for Jerusalem a very clear policy to, quote, enhance uh, the Jewish majority in the city, even set along with, uh, you know, de target demographics. Similarly, in government plans for settlements, this is articulated in clear terms, maximizing settlements, dividing Palestinians, and even Gaza, Although Israel withdrew its civilian population, the research that we and other groups have done have shown the ways in which the closure and separation policy have in effect further demographic objectives by turning Gaza into a demographic receptacle for the Palestinians living there and, and gerrymandering a Jewish majority across uh, the West Bank and Israel proper. 
All these factors together led Human Rights Watch to conclude that, and again, it's detailed in dozens of pages that I don't have time to get into, that there is a policy or an intent to maintain the domination by Jewish Israelis over Palestinians. This is not to negate that Israel does have security concerns, but the abuse is at the core of apartheid. Whether we're talking about denying building permits to Palestinians, but not to Jewish Israelis living in settlements, whether it be the 2003 law that I mentioned around denying legal status to Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, have either no security justification that's even offered, land expropriation, or uses security as mere pretext to further other objectives, none of which negate the intent to dominate any more than saying security would justify torture or other crimes against humanity. The second part of analysis looked at the systematic oppression. And again, we found that Israel systematically oppresses Palestinians. Um, that takes different forms. For example, in the West Bank, of course, where you have dual legal systems, right? Where Palestinians and Jewish Israelis who might live a kilometer apart or even across the street, if they commit the very same offense, they're, they're governed on different legal systems with different due process rights um, and receive different sentences. It also applies to um, the reality of harsh military rule over Palestinians. As we speak, a thousand Palestinians in administrative detention without trial or charge. Meanwhile, there is impunity for rampant sex, uh, settler violence that takes place against Palestinians. Um, we are also, of course, in the West Bank, not only have the uh, stealing, in essence, expropriation of Palestinian land and resources, but when that's redistributed for the use of civilians, according to Israeli government data, 99% of the land goes to settlers who are living in settlements which are unlawful. There are war crimes under international humanitarian law. Similar dynamics in East Jerusalem, including, of course, with residency status, where Palestinians are largely stateless and their status is, is a revocable conditional status that has been for thousands and can be revoked on a variety of circumstances, including not maintaining a connection to Jerusalem. Of course, in Gaza, we have a 16-year policy in June of closure. You know, generalized ban on movement, nobody in, nobody out, absent narrow humanitarian exemptions, also sweeping restrictions on the movement of goods uh, that has contributed to crippling Gaza's economy. 90%, uh, sorry, 80% of the population reliant on humanitarian aid, the majority of families without electricity for the majority of the day. So again, when you put this all together, and even inside Israel proper, although Palestinian citizens of Israel, Palestinians are citizens inside Israel, they're not nationals. And the 2018 nation state law codifies that certain fundamental rights, including the right to self-determination, belong only to Jewish Israelis and not the Palestinians, um, not only inside Israel, but, but in the occupied territory. Putting this all together, again, Human Rights Watch concluded that we have a situation of systematic oppression. The third and final element looks at the inhumane acts or the severe abuses against Palestinians. There are many. The different human rights reports names different ones. Uh, I'll just briefly mention the five that Human Rights Watch focused on. One are the sweeping movement restrictions, not only the closure of Gaza, but in the West Bank, you have the permit regime. So uh, Palestinians needing difficult to obtain permits to enter large parts of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, the nearly 600 checkpoints and closure obstacles that can make a routine you know, commute to school or work into an hours-long humiliating ordeal, uh, not to mention, in fact, um, 
the separation barrier, largely built on Palestinian land, separating Palestinian communities, thousands from their schools, larger communities. Um, the second inhumane act we talk about is the mass expropriation of Palestinian land, one third, more than one third of the West Bank, more than one third of East Jerusalem. This has reduced Palestinians to living in uh, you know, 165 non-contiguous territorial islands, as the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem has put it. Um, third, we talk about the coercive policies in East Jerusalem and Area C, the majority of the West Bank under Israel's exclusive control that make it effectively impossible for Palestinians to obtain a building permit, according to Israeli government data between 2016 and 2018, 100 times more demolition orders than building permits issued for Palestinians in Area C. Um, this leads to thousands, you know, to hundreds every year of Palestinian homes, schools, and businesses to be raised to the ground for no other reason they lack this impossible to obtain permit. Families forced to leave their home. This amounts to forcible transfer, which is one of the inhumane acts that can make up apartheid. Uh, the last two I'll mention very briefly. One is the, um, the uh, denial of residency and nationality rights to hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. Um, not only in East Jerusalem, but we see this in the West Bank and Gaza since 1967, solely because they were abroad for too long or not there when the occupation began. And finally, um, the, the, the denial of basic civil rights, including the right to protest, the right to uh, join associations freely, that for 56 years military orders have forbidden. Even this gathering today that you're having in London, if it happened in Ramallah without a permit from the Israeli army would be an unlawful gathering and all of you would be subject to a 10-year jail sentence. You're, you're looking at, as I'm speaking to you at Shawan Jabarin, who is the executive director of Al-Haq, whose organization has been outlawed by the Israeli government under these draconian West Bank military orders. Same with my colleague Miranda from Defense for Children International Palestine. Some of the most respected human rights organizations, not only in Palestine, Israel, but in the entire globe. I mean, Al-Haq's been around for more than four decades. Shawan sits on our advisory board, outlawed under these, these military laws. So as I move towards concluding, you know, uh, this conclusion of apar uh, apartheid and persecution, it's the most stark assessment that Human Rights Watch has ever reached on the conduct of Israeli authorities. Our recommendations are in line with where we've reached these findings elsewhere. Human Rights Watch also found persecution and apartheid in the treatment of the Rohingya in Myanmar. We also found crimes against humanity, including uh, persecution in the treatment of the Uyghurs in China. I myself documented likely crimes against humanity that the Egyptian authorities committed um, when it comes to protesters in Egypt. They basically call for holding those perpetrators to account, including at the International Criminal Court, including issuing targeted sanctions against those implicated in the crimes. And they also include ending all forms of complicity in these crimes, including for countries like the UK, including for businesses to evaluate all forms of engagement with Israel, to mitigate human rights impacts and to end all those activities that might make one um, complicit in apartheid. So let me sort of, um, you know, this all boils down to the following, which is really where I want to sort of move towards ending uh, my, my remarks today in terms of realities on the ground. There are the following fundamental realities on the ground that must 
be at the heart of any conversation of Israel-Palestine going forward. A 56-year occupation is not temporary. Denying millions of Palestinians their fundamental rights solely because they're Palestinian and not Jewish is not simply a matter of an abusive occupation. A 30-plus year stalled, and I'm being generous by calling it stalled, peace process will not alone dismantle systematic oppression. As our friend Hagai Al-Ad, the executive director of, uh, of, of Beth Salem has written, democracy is the rule of the people, not the rule of one people over another. A daily reality of structural violence and repression, a single system methodically engineered to ensure the domination of one group over another is not a conflict between two equal parties. The first step to solving any problem is to diagnose it correctly. The wrong analysis, the wrong diagnosis, the wrong assessment of the realities on the ground leads to the wrong way forward, the wrong conclusions. Apartheid is not some hypothetical future scenario. It may not have even been a hypothetical future scenario when Yitzhak Rabin warned about apartheid in the 1970s, or when Jimmy Carter in 2007 uh, six, sorry, wrote a book, Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid, or even when John Kerry in 2014, as Secretary of State, warned that apartheid was around the corner. Apartheid is the lived reality today for Palestinians. Palestinians have been telling us this for years and decades, and not enough of us listened. But today, this is not only the assessment of Human Rights Watch. It is not only the assessment of Amnesty International. It is also the assessment of 27 different Israeli human rights groups that on the first day of the new Israeli government use the term apartheid to describe the treatment of Palestinians. It is also the assessment of Harvard Law School's International Human Rights Clinic. It is the assessment of uh, many special rapporteurs, Francesca and many others as well. Beyond the human rights movement, we've seen prominent figures, including the former UN Secretary General, including academics um, like Lawrence Tribe at Harvard, including um, former Israeli officials, former attorney generals, deputy attorney generals, current members of the Knesset, 120 law professors, and even today states like South Africa, Namibia, in fact, the entire African bloc, Arab Bloc and the Organization of Islamic Conference at the UN have all used the term apartheid. Indonesia, Malaysia, the former foreign ministers of Luxembourg and France. I could go on for much longer. The point that I really want to conclude on speaking to you today is that, um, you know, former uh, European foreign ministers calling reality, calling a spade a spade is critical. It must be step one for moving forward. We're in a moment today of unprecedented challenge and opportunity. Palestinians are facing, even today, repression we've not seen before. And I'm not just talking about the escalation in Gaza. Again, another, another cycle of this. I'm talking about the Ministry of Detention that I mentioned. I'm talking about the highest number of killings of Palestinians in the West Bank at a record rate that more than we've seen and in, in recorded, uh, you know, really ever before. NGOs, as I mentioned, under attack. The way forward, step one, must be whatever you believe is the way forward for, for peace, must be to recognize reality for what it is and bring to bear the sets of tools necessary to end it. Thank you so much and look forward to the conversation.
Omar, I was really hesitating to interrupt you there. I did not want to, and I realized that you were going to the final ralentando towards the end, the crescendo arriving here. And I'm delighted that the technology works so well. You could have been physically with us. It's now my pleasure to turn to Melanie Ward, Chief Executive of Medical Aid for Palestinians, who's going to give us the reality in terms of the very important area of access to health. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew, and good afternoon, everybody. Um, as Andrew said, I've been asked to talk about realities on the ground in terms of access to health. Um, so I'm going to give you some examples of some of the problems that Palestinians have in accessing healthcare um, and try and bring some of these to life for you as well. It's, it's a really important time for us to be meeting, given what happened in Gaza last week, and I'll talk a bit more about that and about Matt's response to that. Um, as I go. Many of you will know Medical Aid for Palestinians. We've existed for over 40 years, and our vision is of a future where all Palestinians can access an effective, sustainable, and locally-led system of health care and the full realisation of their rights to health and dignity. We work in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, in Gaza, and in Palestinian camps in Lebanon, and we work in four main ways. Firstly, providing emergency response, which we did last week in Gaza. We released over $100,000 worth of medical supplies to hospitals there to help them to save lives during the bombardments. We build capacity in Palestinian health systems so that they can become stronger themselves. And I'll say a little bit more about that. We support community organizations um, who work on issues like child malnutrition, gender-based violence, and so on. And crucially, we also um, have a strong advocacy programme and we work across four thematic areas, women and children's health, disability rights, mental health and psychosocial support and emergencies and complex hospital care. Crucially, we always try to work in partnership with Palestinian organisations wherever we can, rather than directly implementing ourselves so that we can contribute to the sustainable development of quality Palestinian healthcare systems. Uh, I joined MAP as CEO at the beginning of January after seven years with the International Rescue Committee and before that with ActionAid and ChristianAid. Ten years ago, I spent time living and working in Hebron, including a significant amount of time in H2. And that's when I really understood what occupation looks like and what it does to people. Um, so I was delighted to join as CEO of MAP at the beginning of this year. It's a unique and special organisation. But the need for MAP's work arises from Palestinians' political and daily lived reality, occupation, blockade, forced exile, systematic discrimination and fragmentation. These prevent Palestinians from enjoying their rights to health and dignity, preventing access to the essential building blocks of health, such as livelihoods, freedom of movement, water, shelter, and they prevent the sustainable development of healthcare systems. The discriminatory situation can be measured in the severe health inequalities between Palestinians and Israelis. Life expectancy for Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territory is nine years less than it is for Israelis. Child mortality and neonatal mortality rates are more than five times higher in the occupied Palestinian territory than they are in Israel. Maternal mortality is nine times higher amongst Palestinian women than it is amongst women in Israel. And the survival rate for women who get breast cancer in Israel is 88%. 
That's compared to 65% in the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, coming now to Gaza and what happened last week, where we saw Israeli bombardments killing 33 people, including six children, 190 injured, 948 people displaced, including one of our own staff who was temporarily displaced. And I wanted to share with you um, one of the effects that this has on the mental health of people living in Gaza. There's no doubt there's a mental health crisis there. Um, one of our staff, he's a disability expert. He lives in Khan Yunus, which is one of the areas under particularly heavy bombardment at one point last week. So I messaged him just to check in and see how, how he was doing. Was he okay? And this is what he said to me. I'm playing with my children to try to avoid the sound of rockets. And sometimes there is a discussion with my daughter with no end about why they attacked us and who they are and when this will end. Having to have that kind of conversation with your daughters, uh, your children is a very common experience, sadly, for Palestinians who live in Gaza. MAP's team in Gaza is excellent. Unfortunately, they've had a lot of practice at emergency response with having to respond to six major offensive in 16 years. In 2008, nine, in 2012, in 2014, in 2021, in 2022, and now this year. And also Israel's crackdown on the Great March of Return protests in 2018, 19, where over 7,000 people were shot with live ammunition. Unfortunately, the truth is that international attention is paid only when violence significantly escalates. The ceasefire in Gaza is vital. It's important for saving lives, but it doesn't mean a return to normal. There is nothing normal about life in Gaza. For 16 years now, Israel has imposed an illegal closure and blockade on Gaza. The population is isolated from the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the world, and has caused severe economic deterioration. Unemployment is at 45% among the highest in the world. Food insecurity, 63%. More than a million people are in need of humanitarian assistance because four in five have trouble meeting their basic food and health needs. 95% of water is undrinkable and there are chronic electricity shortages. One in 10 children are stunted. That means they're small for their age and it affects their, develop their development as well. So it has lifelong impacts on their education, their physical health and their development. All of this is compounded by reductions in international humanitarian funding and Palestinian political division. The blockade has devastated healthcare. Some 40% of essential medicines are at zero stock, including for oncology, emergencies, and primary care. Essential medical equipment is not permitted by the Israelis to enter Gaza in many cases, or there are severe delays, including diagnostic machines like x-rays. There's a lack of specialisms as medical workers cannot travel out of Gaza to develop their skills as all other medics would. This is why MAP's local capacity building programmes in which we bring expert doctors and nurses into Gaza is so important. Many of these come from the UK and specialise in areas such as limb reconstruction, cancer treatment, general surgery and physiotherapy. The lack of many services locally, including radiotherapy, advanced heart surgery and genetic medicine, means patients must request permits from the Israeli authorities to exit Gaza via the Erez checkpoint for treatment. According to the World Health Organization, last year, only 65% of patient permit applications were approved. Only 46% of companion permit applications approved. 32% of child patients were approved 
were approved permits, but without a parent accompanying them. So the child was supposed to travel themselves for medical treatment. And during the assault on Gaza last week, more than 430 patients were denied access to healthcare because the Israeli, the Israeli authorities closed the Erez checkpoint. This includes 13-year-old Fares, whose mother spent two years applying unsuccessfully for a permit for him to exit Gaza to get surgery for scoliosis, which is curvature of the spine. He finally received one for the 10th of May last week, but was unable to travel because of the closure of the Erez checkpoint. His mother told my colleagues at MAP, I felt hopeless every time his permit got rejected. When it finally got approved, I was overjoyed, but the joy did not last. When we learned Erez was closed, I can't tell you how I felt. How can I explain this to my son? You have no idea how painful it is for a mum to see her child in this situation, especially knowing that it can be treated, but because he is in Gaza under Israel's blockade, it is impossible. There is a particular cruelty of the blockade in, imposed on Palestinians in Gaza. You see this in the neonatal unit at al Makassid Hospital in East Jerusalem. It's the hospital where the sickest Palestinian babies from both the West Bank and Gaza and from inside Israel are taken to get life-saving care. Last time I was there, the neonatal unit had two babies from Gaza staying there. One baby had his mother with him every day because she had a permit. The second baby hadn't seen his mother for two months because she couldn't get a permit to travel from Gaza. Imagine the terrible trauma of a mother forcibly separated from her desperately ill baby. What kind of system does this to people? Add the impact of cuts to international aid because this is real. The World Food Programme announced last week that it is no longer able to distribute food to 200,000 people in the occupied Palestinian territory due to donor shortfalls. So what is needed in Gaza? A durable solution won't be found in aid, but it'll be found in political action. Blockade and closure is, according to the ICRC, collective punishment imposed in clear violations of Israel's obligations under international humanitarian law. Therefore, we need accountability and states such as the UK to stand up for international law. But here in the UK, the government is very far from doing this. Turning now to the West Bank, the effects of systematic discrimination and fragmentation of the West Bank is especially stark in the communities that MAP serves in Area C, the 60% of the West Bank under full, military, full Israeli military and civil control. The Israeli government deprives Palestinians of the basic building blocks of health, including access to water, sanitation, and hygiene. Israeli settlers living, living illegally on the same land enjoy these in abundance, often at the expense of Palestinians, for example, the WHO recommends a minimum of 100 litres of water per capita per day. Israeli settlements, con Israeli settlements consume up to 440 litres per day, while the Palestinians in the West Bank have access to less than 50 litres per day in many cases. 78% of Area C communities rely on agriculture and livestock for livelihoods, but these are restricted by land theft leaving members impoverished, food insecure, and often having to work on settlements for income. 23% of children in Bedouin communities are stunted due to malnutrition. And 2.5 million cubic meters of untreated wastewater from settlements is dumped in West Bank streams and absorption pits every year. Israel's, discrim Israel's discriminatory and restrictive planning regime makes it impossible for Palestinians to construct permanent infrastructure 
including homes and healthcare facilities in Area C, while settlements expand exponentially. Communities, therefore, have to rely permanently on emergency stopgap measures, including mobile medical clinics provided by MAP and our partners, the, Palestin the Palestinian Medical Relief Society. Services like this provide essential health care, but they're also a stopgap against displacement for vulnerable communities such as the Bedouin. Recently, a resident of the Beit al-Rush community in Hebron told us, we are surrounded by the separation wall and an Israeli settlement. They greatly restrict the movement of patients to find health care when the mobile clinic is unavailable or during an emergency. Before we had the mobile clinic, access to health care was very difficult. We had to go to Hebron city to get treatment. It was the closest healthcare facility. I also needed a companion every time I went there as my sister and I are blind and we live alone in the house. Palestinians also face growing violence from the Israeli military and settlers carried out with impunity. 2022 was the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank since 2005 and the sixth year of consecutive increase in the rate of settler violence. So far this year, more than 100 Palestinians have been killed already in the West Bank and over 3,000 injured. Violence is also pervasive in East Jerusalem. And um, a few weeks ago, uh, outside what was supposed to be a child safe space in the old city, um, it's a child safe space supported by MAP and provided by our partner, Al Saraya. There was a 15 year old boy who was shot in the arm by a settler. Of course, uh, what do you think happened to the settler? Nothing. We're braced, unfortunately, for further such violence in the old city tomorrow um, when the flag day marches will happen. There is routine obstruction and violence against Palestinian health workers, and this is getting worse, denying them access to the wounded, physically assaulting them and damaging ambulances. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society reports a 290% increase in attacks and obstruction to their health teams in quarter one of this year compared to quarter one of last year. Violations of international law are at the root cause of health needs in the West Bank too, from Israel's failure to meet its duties as an occupying power to ensure the safety, welfare and access to health care for the occupied population to its disregard of the protection of health workers under international humanitarian law. Finally, I'll come to Lebanon, where MAP works in Palestinian camps. The plight of Palestinians living as refugees outside of the OPT are often forgotten internationally. 75 years on since the Nakba, in many ways their suffering is the worst of all. In Lebanon, Palestinian refugees languish in unsanitary and overcrowded refugee camps. Compounded by Lebanon's economic collapse, political chaos and discriminatory laws that prevent work and property rights. 93% of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon live in poverty and unemployment is sky high. More than 10% of children under five are stunted and 28% suffer from anemia. Poor living conditions mean high rates of, of communicable diseases, including respiratory illnesses. Public spaces are inaccessible to people with disabilities and children lack safe spaces. There's a severe lack of healthcare resources. The average consultation with an UNRWA doctor in Lebanon lasts just 2.45 minutes. While the health and dignity of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon are severely curtailed by the discriminatory laws and practices of that country's government, ultimately, unaddressed displacement and dispossession lie at the heart of Palestinian refugees' perpetual dependence on aid. So what should be done? 
Everything I've said this afternoon points to a significantly worsening humanitarian situation across the region. There's a perfect storm of waning international aid, worsening economic conditions, an increasingly violent and discriminatory occupation by Israel that is heaping immense pressure on the communities we serve. It's in this context that the UK government has significantly cut aid to the Palestinian people from £88 million in 2021 to just £10 million last year. But let's be clear, humanitarian action is always a sticking plaster. It's never a lasting solution to political problems. For as long as violations of international law continue with impunity, the humanitarian situation is only going to discriminate, deteriorate further and health inequalities will grow. Aid must therefore be matched by commitment at the highest political level, which includes the need to recognise the reality of the systemic discrimination and fragmentation against the Palestinian people as a whole, and take all diplomatic and political measures to ensure Israel reverses these policies and practices. Use UK diplomatic power not to block, but to support genuine investigations and accountability for continuous violations of international law in the occupied Palestinian territory, including through the UN Commission of Inquiry and the International Criminal Court. Place Palestinian self-determination at the heart of UK aid policies, ensuring that the UK not only responds to emergencies with humanitarian support, but drives a sustainable locally-led development of healthcare and other institutions. And finally, ensure that Palestinian voices are included and heard at every level of policymaking discussion that concerns them and their rights. And that should include helping to push back against shrinking civil society space in the OPT, which I'm sure we're about to hear more about. Lastly, public pressure matters. This week, we at MAP have launched our Generation Palestine campaign. This includes sharing the stories of four generations affected by the Nakba, reaching out to new audiences and demonstrating the strong and broad support for Palestinians and their rights here in the UK. I invite you to join us, show your support for hashtag Generation Palestine and share this campaign with others in your network. Thank you. I, I join everyone here in thanking you so much, Melanie. That really was a tour de force. Uh, I think when we hear such powerful testimonies, our hearts and minds are moved to indignation and anger, but we need to channel that positively and constructively in ways that are going to really make a difference and not allow, allow ourselves to be carried away by these emotions. So I'm particularly grateful for this list of actionable recommendations that you made at the end, which we will take good note of and try and include in our conference conclusions. I'm now going to turn to the issue of children's rights, in particular with reference to um, child prisoners, an issue which um, many of us feel very strongly about. And we have the representative of the Defense for Children International, Miranda Clayland, who is on the line, and I hope she is there. Miranda, you hear us? Yes, Great. hi everyone. It, you, you you have the floor, Miranda. All right. Thank you, and um, it's good to see such a full room today. Um, we really appreciate the Balfour Project for inviting DCIP to be a part of this conference today. My name is Miranda Cleland, uh, and I'm an advocacy officer with Defense for Children International Palestine. Um, I live in Washington, D.C., but uh, the rest of our team 
uh, is based in Palestine. Uh, DCIP is a local Palestinian civil society organization and the only Palestinian human rights organization focusing exclusively on the rights of children in the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, that includes the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. Since 1991, we have investigated, documented, and exposed grave human rights violations against children. We provide legal services to children in urgent need. We work to hold Israeli and Palestinian authorities accountable to universal human rights principles. And we advocate at the international and national levels to advance uh, access to justice and protection for Palestinian children. I'll focus my comments today on Palestinian children who have been killed by Israeli forces with live ammunition and Palestinian children who are detained, interrogated, tortured, prosecuted, and imprisoned in the Israeli military detention system. These issues are the main focus of our work defending Palestinian children's rights. We do this work every single day as one of the six Palestinian civil society organizations designated as terrorist groups by the Israeli government. The Israeli government alongside uh, Israeli civil society groups uh, closely aligned with the government has worked very, very hard to delegitimize discredit and shut down these organizations, which include El Haq, uh, who's also with us today. Um, but we have a responsibility to defend Palestinian children and their human rights. Um, and for us, there is no other option but to continue doing this work. It has become very clear to us um, that the Israeli military um, and other Israeli forces have adopted a shoot to kill policy when targeting Palestinians, including children. Um, last year in the occupied West Bank, our team documented 36 cases where Palestinian children were shot and killed with live ammunition. Half of those children were in either Nablus or Janin. So we're really seeing, a, um, and we've seen this in the first part of this year, right? Um, these regular Israeli military incursions into Palestinian communities, particularly focused, heavily focused in the northern part of the West Bank, but um, you know, really, really throughout the entire territory. So we had 36 cases last year. This year, we are not even to the end of May yet, and we have already documented 19 Palestinian children who have been killed with live ammunition at the hands of Israeli forces. Most of these children are shot in the head or the chest, and there are many who were shot in the back, indicating that they were turned away from Israeli soldiers when they were shot and killed. For this year and the previous year, um, we did not find any evidence that any of these children posed a threat to anybody's life when they were shot and killed, which is, of course, the um, the standard under international law that you must meet in order to shoot and kill. And I realized as I was finishing up my notes this morning that today is the two-year anniversary of Israeli forces killing a 17-year-old Palestinian boy named Obaida Jawabra. And in 2019, DCIP produced a short film featuring Obaida in his experience. The Israeli military detained Obaida first when he was 14 years old, and again when he was 15, 
and again for a third time right after the film was released in 2019. And then finally, just before his 18th birthday, on May 17th, 2021, Israeli forces shot and killed him with live ammunition straight to the heart uh, at the entrance to Arub refugee camp in Hebron. This happened during the May 2021 Israeli attacks on Gaza when Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and across historic Palestine rose up and demonstrated against the Israeli apartheid regime. Obaida's story is, an, is exceptional, but it's also not. Israeli forces targeted him again and again and again until they couldn't anymore. And his story is well known because we, he was featured in a film that was watched by people across the world, including perhaps some of you. Um, but he is not the only child who has been targeted repeatedly by the Israeli military. There are currently about 150 Palestinian children in Israeli military detention right now. Um, and when we're talking about children who are detained by the Israeli military, we're talking about children between the ages of 12 and 17. A child is any person under the age of 18, according to international law, and the age of criminal responsibility under Israeli military law is 12. And so we're talking about children in this 12 to 17 age range. We have definitely documented cases where children younger than 12 are detained and harassed by the Israeli military. But those, those cases are, are typically for a very short amount of time, and those children are not prosecuted in this, in this system. Israeli military law, I'm sure most of you know, has applied to Palestinians living in the occupied West Bank since 1967, although Israeli civilian law applies to Israeli settlers living in the same territory. One of the most crystal clear examples of apartheid. Two separate legal systems applied to two separate populations living in the same territory. Part of our work with Defense for Children International Palestine is documenting the experiences that these children go through when they've been arrested by the Israeli military. And so we take sworn affidavits from these children, sworn testimony to really just create a record of their experience, document the kinds of ill treatment and torture that they experienced so we can have a record and we can use that information to advocate for their rights on the international level. So of the 500 to 700 Palestinian children who are detained by the Israeli military each year, about 60% of those children are arrested from their homes in the middle of the night. And that usually looks like a group of Israeli soldiers showing up at a family's home in the middle of the night, or two, three, four in the morning, bursting through the door, going to a child's bedroom and taking him out of that room. At that moment, at the moment of arrest, about 75% of Palestinian children experience physical violence at the hands of Israeli soldiers. They are often kicked, beaten, slapped. Sometimes they are struck with the soldier's helmet or gun. And almost all of them are blindfolded and have their hands bound behind their back with plastic ties. They are then transferred to an interrogation center and during this time, 
the children's family have no idea where they're being taken or how long they will be gone. Once they arrive to that interrogation center, about 80% of children are strip searched by an adult Israeli interrogator. And before they even get to an interrogation, almost all children are denied access to a lawyer prior to their interrogation, as well as the right to have a family member present with them during interrogation. And these interrogations are designed to be extremely mentally and physically coercive. The sole purpose is to extract a confession from a child for whatever he is being accused of committing. I'm sure many of you know that the most common charge against Palestinian children is throwing stones. And so this entire system is designed to be very coercive. It is not interested in justice. It is not interested in upholding the rights of the accused. And so during the interrogation, um, children continue to be physically abused by the adult Israeli interrogator. They are often verbally harassed. They are exposed to informants. And in about one in four cases, a Palestinian child will be placed into solitary confinement for interrogation purposes with the sole purpose to extract a confession. And we have found once a child is placed into solitary confinement, the average amount of time they will spend there is about 16 days. And we've documented one case last year where a child was detained in solitary confinement for around 40 days. And I don't have to tell you the huge immeasurable psychological, psychological impact that solitary confinement has on children, especially at such important stages in their development. Children report suicidal ideation. They report wanting to self-harm or sometimes they do self-harm. Most children, once they are released, will drop out of school. Their parents will say to us, this is not the same child that went into this detention system. This is a different child. We're talking about issues with anxiety, depression. There was one, one case I remember reading from last year where a child who had spent a lot of time in solitary confinement said, I never want to be alone anymore. I always feel like I have to be surrounded by people. I feel like I have to spend every moment with my friends and family because I can't be alone. And so currently there are, I'm gonna turn just, just sort of briefly as, as we wrap up to the issue of administrative detention. And currently there are 11 Palestinian children who are held in administrative detention, which is a tool used by Israel to detain Palestinians, including children indefinitely without charge or trial. Since 2015, DCIP has documented more than 60 cases of Palestinian children held in administrative detention. Administrative detention was introduced by the British during the British mandate of Palestine and is a colonial tool of empire designed to make the po occupied population feel completely powerless. We've documented several cases where Palestinian children have been held for more than a year on secret evidence that is not disclosed to them or their lawyer. And of course, if you have no idea what you were being accused of, you have no idea what the evidence against you is, 
there's no way to prepare your own defense. So thank you very much for listening and for your support, Palestinian children. And I hope for your commitment to holding Israel accountable to its obligations under international law, especially as a signatory to the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, I think I have a few minutes left. And so I'd like to give those minutes to um, a Palestinian boy named Mohammed Mansour. Uh, he is from Janine and he is now 18 years old. Um, and we have a short video uh, that you can watch and hear him describe his experience of administrative detention in his own words. Um, Israeli forces held him in administrative detention without charge or trial for 423 days, and he was released in July of last year. So thank you all very much. Thank you, Miranda, and apologies for the lack of sound, the lack of uh, hearing his voice in Arabic, but I hope that most of you were able to at least read the subtitles and to follow the gist of what was happening there. I'm going to abuse my position as chair for one minute before turning over to Shawan. 
Let's reflect on some of the figures that we just heard from Miranda. In last year and so far this year, 16 and a half months, 55 Palestinian children shot and killed. That's one approximately every 10 days. I wonder what accountability there was, uh, how many independent investigations there were. What did the British government say or do? Did it raise these issues with its friends in, in Israel and they consider them their friends? Did it insist on any independent inquiries uh, with, uh, with these cases? Uh, these are, after all, under international law, protected persons. Under the Geneva Conventions, these are people who are entitled to protection as they live in, in occupied territories. So I want to read out to you what it says in Common Article 1 of the four 1949 Geneva Conventions. It requires parties to these conventions to, quote, respect and ensure respect for the present convention in all circumstances. The fourth Geneva Convention is hugely widely abused and we don't hear anything. Some years ago, I recall that the Swiss government attempted to be able to call an informal meeting of the Friends of the Geneva Convention in order to be able to address this deficit in the failure to be able to uphold and respect the Fourth Geneva Convention on occupied territories with respect to the Palestinian territories. And to its shame, the British government quietly blocked it and refused to allow it to go ahead along with Washington, I should say, even calling a meeting to consider why this treaty, which it had signed, had not been respected. So I'm now turning to our last but not least speaker, Shawan Jabarin of Al-Haq, who I'm delighted is here in person. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you for Belfort Project for inviting me to be today with you. And it's a great honor to be with you today. I heard all of my colleagues, even the introduction of Andrew and also Saida, and also the intervention of my friend, Francesca, and all of the speakers. I ask myself what can add more about what they said. And I ask myself if I'm here and came from Palestine just here today to speak to you, which things that I would like to share with you. They shared a lot of information, a lot of stories, numbers, figures. This is not just an isolated incident here or there. This shows that this is systematic, this is part of a policy. My organization have been, you know, documenting uh, human rights violations since 79, 1979 until today. If you take any of our publications that we published in 80s, 90s, 2000, after, you can make an update for that publication which it means what's going on there, it's part of official policy. It's not an isolated incident. Because of that, when Palestinians commemorated two days ago, the 75th of Nakba, 
it's not just in Akba in 70, uh, it's not Nakba in 75 years, but I think it's an ongoing, you know, Nakba. Killings, killings continue. Destruction and house demolitions continue. Evictions of Palestinian protected persons continue. Land confiscation continue. Everything continue. Because of that, we haven't left the first square since 1948. The other thing is <clears throat> the life and death became equal in Palestine. This has co to concern everybody there. It was mentioned by Medina, it was mentioned by all of my colleagues. But today when I say death and life, yeah, that's the case. Even when you leave your house, you have no guarantee or you don't know if you will come back again or not. When your children, some of them, they are 25 years old, 30 years old, things like that, when they leave, you keep all the time calling them, where are you? Because if you cross any of the checkpoints, you are speaking about hundreds of checkpoints over in the West Bank, for instance, these days. Any soldier can shoot with no reasons. I myself, when I drive, for instance, from Ramallah to Hebron, I have many checkpoints. Always I ask myself, you know, any ordinary person, maybe some accident it happened to them, maybe some problem happened with your car. All the time you keep just wake up, not to move here or there because any soldier can shoot and kill. They don't need reasons to shoot because of that since 2015, we said that the Israeli soldiers, they shoot to kill. There is a policy called shoot to kill. And when we say this, we confirm that and we stand behind this conclusion through our information, documentation, this is an issue. Britain yesterday or two days ago, they skipped from participation in the UN, for instance, to commemorate the Nakba and the US too. I ask myself why? They are responsible for what's happened. They are responsible. And I think it's a time first to recognize the crime and to recognize what you did and what you committed. This is the first step for justice, for peace, for any negotiation, for anything. It's, I think, the starting point to recognize this and to name things by name, by right name. That's the issue. Why the UK, for instance, they put pressure on Mahmoud Abbas, our president, before 2015, before, not to accede to the International Criminal Court. Your country is part, state party of the statute of the International Criminal Court. Why you pressure Palestinians not to accede to? Why you don't recognize even the role of the courts? 
international law, it's not Palestinian invention. This is, you know, the conclusion, this is the lessons were learned from the horrific Second World War and First World War. And it became as a principles to guide, you know, the globe to the direction of peace, justice, things like that. It's not our invention. Why? Why, when it comes to Palestine and Palestinians' rights, you don't want them to respect or to act according to these norms and these principles and these values? This is also a question came to my mind. Why? When I say they pressure Palestinian side, this is an information. Even more than that, they offer to vote for the Palestinians at the General Assembly at that time, if the Palestinians give a guarantee that they will not accede to the International Criminal Court for the next 25 years. This is what they said. Why? You don't recognize, you don't believe about court system, for instance, justice system. If you don't believe, this is also, it brings me to read what Mr. Winston Churchill in one of his interviews, media interviews, what he said, I don't apologize for the takeover of the region by Jews from the Palestinians in the same way I don't apologize for the takeover of America by the whites from the Red Indians or the takeover of Australia from the blacks. It is natural. It's natural for a superior race to dominate an inferior one. It's good to go back and to see if he said this or not. This is also information. This is part of, you know, the archive. And this is the media. This is part. This is the mentality. And I think we live in since that time. We still live in. Another thing is, when any things come to the Israeli side to address what's going on, the reality on the ground, by, let me say, public figures, by academics, by activists, by diplomats, by officials, they face smear campaign just to disseminate fear. And now my colleague, you know, Francesca, she's under a big smear campaign to silence her, to silence her. This is what they are doing and they feel that it works. For instance, officials here or activists or academics, when they try to address things, the real situation there, they face big campaigns against them. They are anti-Semitic and they are, I don't know, they are different labels. The Israelis, they are experts in giving labels, you know, to the people and to everyone. I think it works. Sometimes it works. It works, you know, with the public persons, works with the politicians here or there. That's an issue I think we have to speak out against it. And it's time. It's a time to speak out about against all of these campaigns. It's like a mafia campaign. For instance, 
I would like to share with you just one case. Our organizations, you know, documented the human rights violations in a very high standards. The Israelis, they haven't challenged our information since 79 until today. And they haven't challenged our legal analysts. But in the same time, when we try to cooperate with the International Criminal Court and to provide information to the prosecutor office, we were under, and we have been under, smear campaigns since that time. And they use different methods. One of that is death threats calls. One of that is a funeral roses behind the doors of our colleagues, those they cooperate with the, the court in The Hague. And things investigated at the end by the Dutch police. And they concluded that Palestinians, they are not behind. Uh, small groups, they are not behind. Sophisticated state, it's behind, but they didn't name Israel. This is an issue, this is part. Sending, you know, fake letters to banks under the name of the Palestinian Monetary Authority. Just they change a dot not to transfer money because it's eligible, you know, this organization or that organization. It take you three months, four months until you discovered what's happened with that. This is part of the story. Beside also the raids, trying also to silence us, drying our resources, this is part. This shows, you know, how, what they do. We were seven field workers during the first intifada under administrative detention. This is part of the story. And here they used what's called detention, administrative detention as a tool in their hands to punish persons and the society and to interfere in the Palestinian political system. This, it's clear, you know, from when they arrested around 40, five legislative council members just to destroy after 2006, after the election. That also shows, you know, how they use it arbitrarily. They use what's called law. More than that, Meir Shamgar, he was the president or the chief or the head of the Israeli high court. He was a young lawyer in 19... 45, 46. At that time, he was a lawyer to defend Shamir, Begin, and others when the, the breach, during the breach mandate, when they detained them and put them under administrative detention. Administrative detention, you know, it was like emergency regulations during the breach mandate. It was founded in 1945. He said, this is his words. He said, this is, you know, this law, it's a nazist, nazist practice. After 48, he came with the idea, keep the British mandate, emergency laws, regulations in our hands 
under the name of the British mandate, because this is the worst thing. We don't want to put a label Israel laws or emergency. This is the case. This is how they use something like that. Today, today there is 1,012 uh, and 12 uh, Palestinian under administrative detention. Five out of them, they are children under 18 years old. No due process, no charges, nothing. Just take you, put you in detention. They can renew your detention indefinitely. This is the democracy, the only democracy in the Middle East. No due process, take you, put you there. You don't know why, how, how you defend yourself. Just, I need just evidence. I don't want your resources. Keep your resources for you, but just to defend myself. That's the case. This is part of the story. <clears throat> Another thing when it comes to the protection, it was mentioned also the protection. I think when there is no protection provided to you by occupying power, by your authority, by the internationals, I think you will look for your own way to protect yourself. And this is natural. This is natural and normal. This is the case. The killing these days, it's a daily practices. That's the case. And the young generation, they lost their hope. I think without enjoying your and exercise your self-determination, no way, no way. As a step, first step, I completely endorse what Francesca mentioned and what she said about self-determination. Another thing is the policy is the fragmentation as a tool to control the Palestinians. Fragmentation is part of a policy. Fragmenting place, people, they are here in Ramallah, there, clans, Palestinians outside, Bedouins, all of these things. Fragmentation to engineer, even engineering the Palestinian society according their interest as a colonial regime, as an apartheid regime. That's what they are doing these days and even before. <clears throat> because of that, without looking at the fragmentation, and here shows that the checkpoints, roads, it's not for security reasons. No, it's for political reasons. Not to let Palestinians to reach their land here or not to connect here or there and to keep them under the mercy of the soldiers here or there. When we say the occupation is a controlling system, we mean it, we mean it. We don't exaggerate when we say that to control even your dreams. Your love, if you are from Ramallah and have a love with the one from Jerusalem, you have to address yourself 1,000 questions. If the Israelis allow you to go to join her or to join him in Jerusalem and to live together as a family, and if she or he 
come from Jerusalem to live in Ramallah? What's about her residency or his, his residency? The Israeli will revoke that. This is part. And I think one thing, you know, I would like to mention also, <clears throat> it's relating to the Palestinians struggle and fight against these things. 100 years ago, they thought that if you impose all of these policies of Palestinians, they will disappear. They will, you don't know what will happen. After 100 years, we still, in our land, the young generation standing in the right square defending the right, collective right and individual rights, right of return to the refugees to their land, and also self-determination. This is what we are calling for. Sometimes they are asking us, and they hear the question to Francesca, one state, two state, 67, we are speaking about people, Palestinian people. And when we say people, we mean by people, 67, 48, in diaspora, and everywhere. People, they have the right to enjoy and to exercise their self-determination. Right of return to the people also to their home. This is the main thing, I think. Without addressing all of these things, things will continue. And situation will continue and deteriorate more and more. World is changing. World is changing. Young generation now in Palestine, those they are under uh, 29 years old, 76% of Palestinians under 29 years old. This is shows that you, are, you have a young generation. We will keep hope. We need the peace to arrive, but it will not arrive without interventions, actions, and consequences by the third state parties and by the international community. Our people will stay there and we will not disappear, for sure. And the future is for justice, no doubt of that. Thank you so much. Our thanks are due to you completely, Shawan, for taking the trouble to come to us from Ramallah. We know it's a difficult journey. We're very grateful that you could come in person. It makes a big difference to us to hear directly from you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a short break now, a 10-minute break. Immediately afterwards, we will have a panel discussion, which my colleague, Dr. Phyllis Starkey, will chair. And that will be followed by a second panel with a cross-party group of parliamentarians, which our vice chair, Sir Vincent Fien, will, will share. I will come back to you at the end with a short summing up and try and capture some of the recommendations made, aided by my colleague who is sitting at the front, duly taking notes. And uh, we will certainly hope to be able to do justice to the suggestions that have been made here. 
but please take a break. Please be prompt coming back. I know that the lifts don't make it easy for you to do so, but we look forward to seeing you in 10 minutes, please.